Until February 2022, the war in Ukraine could be dismissed by some as a quarrel in a faraway country between people of whom we know nothing, especially if they had been influenced by aggressive Russian propaganda and the techniques of hybrid information warfare. But in 2022, the war became full scale and the propagandistic subterfuge was far less effective. The West had believed that mutually beneficial commercial activity created a guarantee against a full-scale war in Europe. That would see hundreds of thousands of dead and wounded. That a Russian elite with financial property and commercial interests in Europe would not risk it all for an imperial adventure or fall in behind the desperate acts of a genocidal autocrat. But once again, we entirely failed to predict or understand Russia's actions. The trauma and misfortune Russia has wrought on its peaceful democratic neighbour is reminiscent of World War II. But will the leaders that unleashed this barbarism go the same way as the Nazi elite in 1945? Welcome to Silicon Curtain. All our content is also available on popular podcast platforms like Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Please like and subscribe to help new people find our fantastic speakers. And of course, if you enjoy the content, consider supporting us by becoming a patron. Anastasia Edil is a Russian-born American writer and social historian. She is the author of Russia, Putin's Playground, a concise guide to Russian history, politics and culture. Her writings appeared in the New York Review of Books, the New York Times, the Los Angeles Times, Project Syndicate, Quartz, and World Literature Today. She teaches history at the OSHA Lifelong Learning Institute at the University of California, Berkeley. Anastasia, welcome to the channel. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, what really grabbed my attention was an article you produced in Foreign Policy, and we're going to cover a lot of the themes that were contained in that, and we will, of course, provide a link to that article in the description of this video. But let's start with one of those main ideas that you put forward in the article, and that's to ask, why didn't mutually beneficial commercial activity guarantee the global security order? Well, it's an interesting question. I think that we have collectively... We may have collectively confused uh, globalization with adherence to a common civilization, right? So we thought that if we're all watching Friends and shopping at IKEA, uh, we we share a common values and the same respect for rule of law, of so for sovereignty, for individual freedom, freedom. And it's easy to get confused because any foreign sitting you come into now looks you know the same as far as retail and coffee culture goes so but that's this war has shattered this illusion the, beneath the facade of commonality we are fundamentally different there are autocratic states and there are democratic states and uh, you know the nature of autocracy is that it's the rule of one and uh, that contradicts the very word mutual mutual benefit right I mean in Russia this is exacerbated by the fact that its president and ruling clique from come from um, an institution that historically in Russia is above the law. You know, KGB, that's heir to NKVD and heir to uh, Lenin's Extraordinary Commission. In its name, it basically puts it above the law, and the only law is the will of the autocrat. And such was Putin's will. He wanted to bring Ukraine back into imperial fold. And so we 
have been under a certain illusion, I feel, in, you know, with this whole end of history and how the world is trending towards continuous progress, but it's not. And that that is like any war, it's a wake-up call. The, the, the problem with this war, that it's a huge wake-up call that is reordering everything that we have come to take for granted. And of course, Putin was able to create quite a convincing hybrid informational regime, wasn't he? In, in, insofar as it wasn't just a number of you know, policymakers that were taken in by it. Um, many oppositionists, um, you know, I would I would imagine many Russian citizens themselves imagined they lived in a weak democracy or a sort of hybrid system rather than what now is apparent. Behind the scenes, it's a full autocracy with puppet institutions, uh, you know, Potemkin uh, facade, as you say, of shared values. Um, and, you know, this might be going too far, but even some of those liberal institutions like Echo Moskvi and others and now perhaps seen part of that whole machine that created, uh, you know, that fictional facade of a quasi-democratic society. Yeah, well, I mean, you can't be partially pregnant, right? Like you you are either <laughs> an autocratic regime or you're, you're not. And for a while, I, I felt that, um, you know, people were, I mean, there's, it's so, it's such a complex issue right why did russia descend into an another iteration of you know as one of um you know the people in my article calls it totalitarianism 2.0 uh they have seen freedom uh, they felt the absence of fear you know it's a very powerful feeling when you were afraid and you're no longer afraid so the question is why did it happen and you know like any sort of it, it was a process so what started for a lot of uh russians i believe and i was among them was this feeling of i i'm i'm tired of politics or you know and this is a misnomer because there were no politics in the ussr but it was a highly ideological politicized society where you had to be political and suddenly you were not so a lot of people just took it as a carte blanche to never think about that again and i was among those people, I wasn't interested in anything remotely um, close to ideology. And uh, it was in, for, for our generation who studied, you know, Marx and Lenin compulsory mandatory in school, that was, that was liberating. But then somehow uh, this sort of desire to break out of the confines of ideology, which was legitimate, I believe, during the 1990s when there was no ideology, when the uh, when Yeltsin and his government did not force uh, ideology on the society. But that changed with uh, Putin's arrival. He is highly ideological, like most of the people with his background. And uh, you could, you know, I feel like a lot of people were first in denial about what he's doing, and then they were kind of distancing themselves from it and concentrating on something else, on making money, on going abroad, and kind of like, don't bother me with that. I, I do feel, know, and think that a lot of people were uncomfortable with, with what he was doing even early on, but they just 
first nobody thought that he would be there forever, right? That he would be there past his terms. And um, and the slippage of freedom, you know, it doesn't happen overnight. It's just like a balloon that's pierced and the air gets out until mm -hmm. there is nothing left. And and the I think the big question is when is the point of no return when you can't mend it? And uh, boiling the, the frog, get... I've heard it. Uh, oh yeah, yeah, the boiling the frog analogy. analogy. Yeah. By the time you get there, it's um, it's kind of too too late to to act. So there's a. A substantial portion of the population that didn't flee. We know that uh, anything up to a million people have actually fled, and many of them are some of the most sort of talented and educated, uh, which has taken a huge chunk out of the workforce, especially IT. But for those who remain, we suspect that there is a percentage, whether it be sort of 15 to 20 percent, who are rather actively in favour of the war. Um, but there's a big percentage of people who are perhaps still doing what you described there, which is the sort of ostrich effect of trying to pretend none of this is happening and, and hoping it will all go away. You know, look, I mean, Russia, a law, a, the most important city in Russia is Moscow, right? And um, the regime does its best uh, to make sure that people in Moscow don't notice the war, right? Like the, and how do Russians measure stability? The stores are still full, you know, the bars are still open, the restaurants are still open. There, There is no, you know, I haven't been there, but from what I hear from the people who are there, you can't really tell that this is a country that's in a major war, uh, no matter that it calls it special operation and, and whatnot. So there are, uh, so you can live your life as if, nothing happens right but uh also this deep deep inside they might not show it in opinion polls but they know what's you know particularly people with access to internet know what's going on and this creates this cognitive dissonance where you you have to make a decision either you out or you're in right because if you so if you're out you leave if you're in for some reasons then you have to make some sort of balance or peace with it right and and that's just uh some of it is defense mechanism right rather otherwise you will go mad right because you are every day you are complicit in crimes that are committed in your name i mean this is a russian war this is not just putin war so people make have to make choices not everybody can leave again and um they make choices either to ignore or at least to pretend to ignore or, you know, actively support it because there is, you know, in, in there, any cult, uh, there is sort of some kind of quasi-satisfaction from belonging to something bigger than you are. And um, the propaganda machine, particularly the Russian propaganda machine, is, is really good at stoking those feelings that you belong to a great place uh, that has been wronged in some way. And, and they keep perpetuating that narrative in in many, many ways. And so some people make a, you know, make a choice to belong. And, you know, this, we're observing this, I'm not sure if you have seen it, this new song that they, I guess, they're trying to uh, sort of uh, make a symbol of the in invasion, this kind of, I'm Russian, right? And this, it goes on and on about how I'm Russian, I'm, proud of being Russian and, and 
you know, to me, to somebody who grew up in the Soviet times of international internationalism and, you know, all nations are equal. And, you know, yes, of course, it was all, you know, it was propaganda too, but it was a different propaganda. You were not supposed to be proud just because you wore or we wore of a certain ethnicity. And um, that's not what uh, Putin's uh, ideology is doing. It's basically telling people it's it's good to be Russian. It's great to be Russian. It's okay to behave well as, uh, I'm sorry, it's okay to behave badly as long as it is done for the benefit of the motherland. And, you know, for some people, um, that's, that's something that they enjoy. I mean, jingoism does have some kind of um, extra, <laughs> extra benefit. But I want to, be before we kind of move off this um, to the next question, I want to make sure that um, there are also Russians who stand against it. It's just that, I mean, every day in Telegram channels, there's an example of somebody defying the regime. And, uh, but those people are, they, they are single people, right? They can't, they can't turn in, they can't not even turn around this regime. They can't influence it in any way. They're going to be sucked into the repressive machine and, and uh, their lives, livelihoods will be destroyed, but um, there are brave people and decent people still left. I mean, it's a, it's a huge country, right? And there are plenty of decent people left. The problem that we are collectively having is that these decent people cannot change the course that this country is going. And they're not necessarily part of a network or they don't necessarily have a consistent sort of philosophy or ideology to sort of group them together. They're um, almost dissociated acts of of, uh, of protest. And we know there's been a lot of sabotage as well. We're not clear whether it's Ukrainian partisans or those with Ukrainian um, you know, ancestry or there's got to be some individual Russians there, no doubt as well, burning down the... Uh, you know, conscription offices, the Van um, mm -hmm. <clears throat> But again, it's it's not part of a consistent movement, which means that the isolated acts of protest can only reduce the efficiency of the Russian war machine. They won't necessarily do anything to topple the regime or build resistance to the regime. Well, look, I mean, all Ru Russian opposition um, has been destroyed. It allowed itself to be destroyed, like, but... Um, in order to have organized resistance, you have to have some kind of organizing means, you have to have network. And I felt like, you know, Navalny came really close to uh, putting together that um, network of activism, um, but it's it's no, it's no longer there. It's so people basically um, do what Russians are, you know, do, well, the acts of individual um, heroism, and it's almost like martyrdom, right? At this point, for people who who do this, I mean, I I can't get out of my head this the story of the girl who drew a painting in her in her class drawing competition and was read it out by the teacher to the FSB and is now literally imprisoned in some kind of institution for orphans, whereas her father is um, arrested. I mean, that is, you know, so when people, I feel like Russia is good at creating this unsolvable um, 
dilemmas, right? That they can't be solved. On the one hand, everybody's like, why can't Russian rebel? Uh, why can't they just sweep this regime off that sends them to death, that spreads death in their name? And um, you feel mad, right, that um, they can't. But then you listen to a story, you see a story like this, and you understand why. I mean, in a certain way, uh, how much fear that society has. Um, and, you know, it's not justifying uh, the fact that uh, Russian society, basically, well, Russian nation has failed as a society. There is no society in Russia, right? There is a mass of people they're atomized uh, by their own state because it's easy to keep them in control in that way. But there really um, is not much as far as sort of um, common ground between the, those people, right? Other than fear of authorities. And I think that's where perhaps the West, uh, you know, um, hasn't done enough thinking uh, in the 90s. Um, and that's to assume that the decades and decades of um, essentially psychological operations within the USSR to break up civil society, to break up any kind of impulse to self-organize uh, or to define whether it be through sort of, you know, cultural groupings or nationalities to define identities outside of the officially designated ones. Um, that process you know, destroyed, as you say, you know, the sense of class, the sense of any kind of grouping or organization um, or the sort of the infrastructure that would do that. And I think we kind of assumed that that would reemerge and bounce back in the 90s. And that hasn't really happened. And to an extent that made it quite easy for Putin to reassert this sort of machinery and psychology and mindset of the USSR. And we're rapidly i guess heading back to that kind of mental space of repression if not maybe a worse one uh i think you're totally right uh we all made the same mistake you and i right we were uh the people who believed that perestroika uh, and uh what followed was the natural state of russia right that that's something that uh you know, it's almost like I felt like we've reached the national catharsis, right? This this is where we redeem ourselves. This is where we renounce, you know, the the path of the, that the, that detour that took us into um, communism and Bolshevism, and and you know, we were kind of wandering there in the darkness, and uh, finally we have um, emerged um, into into light. And uh, I thought that, you know, because my life has tremendously improved. My mother's life has tremendously improved just because I think for some some people um, feel acutely injustices and, and ab absence of freedom. And my family happened to be one of those people. So even though we remained poor uh, in the particular, in the beginning of Perestroika, we still felt uh, that life has improve because there is no this oppressive state that just um, hangs over you and tells you how to think. So we made an assumption that everybody loved it, right? But then we have to also remember uh, the, you know, that the dissolution of USSR also caused 
uh, well, not the dis the idea that USSR will kind of uh, fall apart caused protest demonstrations against that too. So there was a huge contingency of people who did not want this to fall apart. And perhaps in our fever and enthusiasm, we just disregarded them. And um, we disregarded how unequipped the Soviet state has made them for modernity, right? And obviously the the older you are, the you know the the worse it is um, for you because you don't have the skills, you don't have the opportunities that you know people who were younger uh, had, like me, for instance. You know, I was lucky enough to uh, you know work in a Western firm to hear about an organization called British Council and to apply for a scholarship and to go out and you know that has changed uh, my life for for the better but for for many people it was also you know a huge time of economic hardship and so you know they they again they sort of the fate of the putin's regime is that it conflated those two things that he made an equality he inserted an equality sign between liberal democracy, which was the sort of the stated um, designation of Yeltsin's government and economic hardship. And uh, it's also, you know, he stoked the trauma in them instead of allowing the nation to, to move on past those years. Not only did he reap the benefits of all those reforms that, you know, we that, that we have suffered through, uh, and it was done by the reformers, by Yeltsin's government. And so he took that when, you know, there's some version of capitalism was built in, in record in what, two uh, five-year terms, right? Um, and then, but, but then he just basically took the benefit, the economic uh, benefit of it, and then you know, said that, uh, and basically convinced the people that uh, the liberal democracy has has nothing to do with successes economically, right? Uh, that he he kind of divorced those two terms, and from that point on, started kind of stoking the trauma of the past. And of course. This coincided with the rise in oil prices uh, and a huge increase in the demand for gas, which sort of fueled the European economy. Um, and to an extent, you know, he was able to provide a material lift. But if we compare that to China and the vast uh, growth in sort of industrial infrastructure um, and civic infrastructure, I think in hindsight, we can now see that that actually the increase in material living and standards none of that went into political infrastructure none of that went into building a sustainable society or indeed a sustainable political system and that's that makes it sort of doubly tragic i think the, the the waste of human and material resource that we're now seeing after those sort of two decades yeah well you know the funny thing about russia is that um the certainly material state of Russia has improved under Putin, right? And it's uh, many people have said that Russians under Putin lived at the economical level 
that they've never lived in their history. Uh, and, you know, but let's not forget that with all this greatness and uh, mega improvements, you still have a country with where 20% of people don't have access to plumbing, right? Like it's not a luxury, but so all these improvements, uh, they they were sort of uh, in, in enclaves, right? In certain, obviously Moscow, Petersburg, biggest towns, and it was distributed unevenly. And so, but it definitely, is you know Russia today as far as economics go is not the USSR of uh, of my childhood and which I feel like it makes it so dangerous because at least USSR was inefficient economically and it didn't know what it was doing and you know it 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 kind of uh, floated along but uh, this regime is much uh, more sustainable because it has harnessed uh, the sort of the market economy to its own own means and like you said benefited benefited tremendously from the increase in prices in uh oil and gas and kind of like uh took uh there was a spillover effect and um you know Russians now have bike lanes and restaurants that are the maybe the envy of Europe uh, but uh it's you know it's all it, it it's it seems like it's all a facade because all these advancements it's like with peter the great right i mean he took all these german innovations and and modernized russia from the point of view of technology he had completely no interest in adopting exploring parliamentary <laughs> rule or any other political innovations uh, and so we now are seeing the example that you know Sooner or later, this inability to adapt a more humane former government catches up with you uh, and uh, will lead to the ultimate destruction of the assets you managed managed to build. Just because unconstrained power that is Russia, right? It's it's a power that is above any constraints, uh, basically makes the entire country, which is what, one-eighth of the, one-ninth of the land space, um, a sort of dependent on the personality and the will of one person. And so when we had Yeltsin and Gorbachev, <laughs> that worked really well. Um, but uh, when we had somebody, you know, like Putin, we, we've seen where it can take you. And, uh, and it's just uh, sad that, Russia seems to be defaulting to the same place over and over, despite the its sort of own violent attempts at uh, dissolving its own statehood and building something new. And we have seen it, you know, in 1917 uh, with the dissolution of the Tsarist regime and uh, and and building the regime that, in many ways, uh, well, it was much worse just by the scale of it, by the by the scale of repressions and how many people um, it could uh, turn into prisoners and execute. And it's just, and then, you know, that thing collapses and we have some 10, 12 years of relative freedom. And, and uh, but then it's like, you know, the Terminator drops that start gathering into the same thing. And, you know, if you are a thinking person, you, you keep asking yourself, you know, so what is, the true Russia, uh, 
for me, for instance, you know, a person who for better or worse uh, identifies as a Russian American, you know, Russian is a part of me. So what am I representing exactly? And and there was a hope that we all shared in the 90s that the true Russia can reunite itself with the West and kind of continue as a member of a shared civilization. But, um, you know, that illusion, that belief, uh, probably we should have paid more attention to what you know, the regime was doing in Chechnya to what the regime was doing in Georgia and um, and internally what it was doing. And so, but for some reason, you know, we were not, yeah, I, I can't say we were not paying attention. People, people were paying attention, but they just didn't realize uh, where this unconstrained model of power of an autocrat um, takes you. And that, that's, that's where it took, Russia and the world with it. Because again, Russia is a huge place. And you if something really bad is happening in a big place, you're bound, you know, to to get uh, involved in it, particularly if you're in Europe. And I think there's two things we really sort of failed to pay attention to there. And it was interesting, a couple of years ago, I heard um, Kartochowski speak in, in London. And he was asked the straight question, you know, how should we deal with with Putin? And this was just after Crimea, but obviously before the full-scale invasion. And he said simply, you should not deal with him. You should have no diplomatic relations. You should have no economic relations. You should not let his elite come in and buy property and park their yachts and their cars. And you should you should actually put a barrier up and put certain conditions on that barrier coming down. The audience was visibly shocked. And he basically said, you know, Putin's a warlord. Uh, he's a mafia boss. That's the milieu that he emerged from. And he's a brutal hybrid between a sort of HGB uh, and and uh, Tambovska, you know, Gruperovka. Um, but no one wanted to hear that. The audience sort of gasped in horror, like, how can you... How can you sort of say that? So he was still seen as a statesman. And I think part of that comes with our Western arrogance, uh, as in the sort of Fukuyama idea that the end of history, liberal democracy will be triumphant. And we're entering a period of of sort of calm where all the, uh, you know, all the swords will be turned into plowshares and we can reap the benefit of it. Um, all these ideas are sort of a form of, of wishful thinking. And we've forgotten perhaps the history of autocrats like Stalin, where you have someone who can guide a country with no limits and no checks and balances, you get terrible decisions being made for sometimes sort of fantastical or whimsical reasons. And they come at a huge price in terms of, you know, material and men and suffering. Um, and there's there's nothing to, to stop that happening. And I think we'd lost sight of of that history. It is true. Um, I agree with you. I also think that, um, you know, perhaps I'm an idealist, but uh, a lot of uh, misunderstanding of what Russia is, was based on our collective desire to see a better Russia. Uh, because we, you know, as people who have been touched by, you know, it's hard to say now by the Russian culture because what is Russian culture? But uh, let's, you know, 
if we confine it to the 19th century writing and, you know, Chekhov, uh, Turgenev, uh, and to a certain extent by by the Soviet uh, literary and cultural tradition, we, it, it was an illusion, right? But we grew up believing that, you know, there, there is a better Russia and this Russia is revealed in those enduring works of art. And when we had, you know, when the USSR collapsed, what was it? Why wouldn't we believe that, you know, now we're going to see the Russia of Bulgakov and Chekhov and, you know, this free spirit will be released and imagine what if this country will achieve now without its heavy shackles, as Pushkin would put it. And instead, this country goes on and, and builds another prison, right? I mean, who could have expected that? And yes, I you know, we are not policymakers and perhaps policymakers should have paid a close attention. But to your point about Western arrogance, I think there was also a certain desire to see uh, a world, you know, you know, in the kind of a Beatles, imagine no religion, you know, and, and no borders uh, way. So that's sort of a, an, an explainable uh, delusion, but, um, or illusion, right? Delusion, it becomes when you hold on to it. And I think one of the important things right now is to understand that, you know, sort of understanding that you were believing a chimera and illusion is a good thing. It's a step forward because now we know that, you know, whatever we admired in the Russian culture was not the work of, like, it shouldn't be even called Russian. It was work of individual uh, geniuses. It was also, you know, was Gogol Russian? No, he was made Russian and he became an imperialist in a sense that he chose to write in, in Russian, but what other, you know, he, he had few other choices. Um, so, it is, you know, it is all understandable, uh, but we must move on. And and I'm speaking as someone who, uh, for me, this comes from a place of great pain, right? Because particularly here, when I moved to the West, you know, I've seen growing up in a provincial town in Russia, very, very different uh, country than what uh, I what I encountered the perception of Russia was when I moved to Birmingham, UK. You know, I was the only Russian out there back in the 1996. People kind of uh, came to came to look at me. And uh, there was a much more exalted perception of who I am and what I represent than I saw. Because what I saw growing up in a small um, town in Russia in a sort of single mother family was a lot of violence and a lot of oppression and and um not a lot of culture right you, you, you there is a there always has been a perception in the west that you know russians are just sitting in on a subway car and reading war and peace and that's not what i saw right i mean there was a desire to project it and so i think now it is important to sort of stop uh being um, mesmerized by the propaganda that the Russian state for centuries puts out. You know, it always wears a mask, uh, which is, in its essence, after its emergence of, after the emergence of the Russian modern state, 
uh, from the Mongol conquest, it has tried many masks. It tried to be, you know, a, a third Rome, it tried to be a thousand year old uh, Orthodox empire, Christian empire. It tried to be a, social, a socialist state and, and, and then, you know, a liberal democracy, but it's like doling out these masks and, and, and the West, you know, kind of falls for it every time. I mean, think about socialism, right? And and uh, yet I know that a lot of Western intellectuals and British in particular uh, were sort of sympathetic to Marxism and the ideas of the revolution and, and, and continue to be so. But how can you sympathize with a place that turned the country into a giant gulag, right? And, and killed millions of its own people and, so that should have put an end, right, on that. But and yet, you know, we reemerge after Stalin with, uh, you know, uh, with with a lot of, uh, you know, then then there and then there is Solzhenitsyn, ah, oh, you know, and everybody is like, oh, that's true, true Russia, right? And so it keeps appropriating this um, this people who, through personal suffering, uh, create these works of beauty. But that's a, it's not a healthy pattern, even for culture, right? Uh, yes, suffering makes you write or, or paint better, but it doesn't have to. There are other ways to get to greatness other than through um, sort of tormenting um, the person so that it starts, you know, seeing other other spheres. And there are interesting contrasts, aren't there, that often go underlooked. So Tolstoy, you know, a great anti-imperialist, many incredibly harsh statements in his literature, um, uh, really sort of condemning uh, the system and the country that he that he was brought up in and, and making anti-imperialist statements. Whereas Solzhenitsyn turns out to be a sort of arch nationalist underneath it. And when he returns, he becomes a key influence on Putin and his his ideology. And I think this idea that you described there of masks, when we tear the mask off, you know, Scooby-Doo fashion, what do we see underneath it? Um, it is it is a primary atavistic, I would call it lust for expansion, for land, for increasing, you know, territory. Um, and yet, as you say in the West, we did not interpret the USSR as an imperial project. And I think with the war against Ukraine, there's been quite a lot of rethinking um, because Putin's ambitions are so much more sort of naked and apparently you know, clearly imperialistic. Uh, I think it's starting to cause a shift in reinterpreting Russian history itself and Soviet history. And I think it's about time, right? It's, it's really about time. But I feel that, um, you know, the previous situation of Russia in, you know, in which I grew up, the USSR, it had certain ideas uh, that were un antithetical to capitalism, right? Uh, and and it was built on ideas of uh, you know equality for all and justice and um, sort of no borders. So there was a lot, you know, there was a lot to like uh, in on the idea level that those ideas turned out to be. No, un unimplementable and perverted on the Russian ground. Uh, you know whether we have would have seen a different result with if socialism <laughs> was adopted in a place that isn't Russia and sort of taken to. And we've seen it with some of the Western countries, right? Mm -hmm. um, in Scandinavia, 
it, it would have been a different outcome. But uh, in in Russia, this uh, really this really failed economically and and socially. But there was a lot of appeal to the West that kept looking, kept trying to look for something in Russia that, you know, it was almost like an alternative existential universe. Who wants to now, you know, but that thing died in when, you know, when the U.S., with the collapse of the USSR. Uh, Putin's regime was and is not able, despite all of its attempts, right, to create a a new sort of um, magnet for the for the West or for the world, or at least for the democratic uh, West. Uh, so that breath that you know carried, I feel like, if you think of culture as some sort of um, you know soul or breath in a nation, right? And and you know the nineteenth century definitely um, through this its unprecedented sort of um, uh, flourishing of literature. And and art and theater in Russia kind of ex also extended. Um, it it breathed life into a pretty uh, rigid uh, body of the Russian uh, autocracy. Autocracy, uh, and that that was sort of that was destroyed during the Red Terror, the Revolution, and the Class War. But some of it continued, and then the Soviet culture, based on all these you know ideas of equality and justice for all and that created a certain sort of it carried through right a little bit less but you know it still formed people like people of my generation like me like my husband you know who believed in this sort of alternative russia right but now that breath is is it's gone you can't run on it for for centuries i feel like it um we've seen the last of it back in late ussr and uh there is no compelling image of Russia that uh, Putin now can put forward, which will cause the people to look uh, closer into its history, into its to revise its literature and um, everything that it had said, that it had projected. Because I felt like we were under a spell, right, for a long, long time, and this this war um, breaks the spell. It it removes the magic that you know, existed. And I felt it uh, through the books, for instance. Uh, but also, we should never forget that I, I feel like we, in a sense, those who fall under Russian spell, by definition, are divorced from Russian reality, right? Because the reality of Russia was, you know, curse words kind of scrolled on the desk in my privileged uh, specialized english learning school like what why you know why would you destroy so you know pointlessly things around you and 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 that was the russian reality because you know people were unhappy they were angry and uh, they were treated with violence and violence they dealt back and it's uh you know they they were not sitting there you know watching Tarkovsky watching Tarkovsky that's the example I was going to use um <laughs> you know I remember when I went to my first Russian lesson and uh I was a huge fan of Tarkovsky and the teacher very politely explained that you know not point not one percent of people would have seen the films and of course they were illegal generally when they were, were you know they had a very limited circulation when they were brought out and yet that cultural soft power 
has a big impact in the West. As you say, it exaggerates and it hides a lot of the reality that you see behind the scenes. Um, but what's happening now is interesting. And before we, we hit the record button, a very interesting idea, I think, was we, we were talking about, and that was empire and the deforming effects of empire, but also the fact that the Russian empire is largely a parasitic entity. Um, and we see that in the 19th century, where it was able to feed off many of the nationalities and countries that uh, the Russian empire absorbed uh, off their mm -hmm. brain power uh, in a sort of parasitic effect. And then, of course, during the USSR, it had Central and Eastern Europe also included within its boundaries. And to an extent, it also sort of fed off the sort of collective brains and creativity and resources of that as well as, you know, its global ambitions. It had a lot of connections with uh, the global South, Africa, and so on. It had huge tentacles mm. around the world, which helped to feed that organism. What we see now, however, is a Russia that has taken its soft cultural power and it's burnt it up. It's taken its moral position in the world, which actually it could have used uh, after the 90s, because it got a bit of a free pass after Gorbachev when the USSR collapsed, but it's taken all of that reputation, all of that goodwill and burnt that up as well now. And what we also see is that territories bordering Russia are no longer willing to be dominated by it. We have Ukraine fighting back. We have Belarus in, in a really fragile state. We have Central Asia starting to push back uh, against Russian influence and the parasitism of the system. Where does that lead? Where does that lead the Russian Empire, which historically, I think you were saying before we started talking, has been historically one of the poorest and least efficient imperial machines in history? Well, you know, when I was writing um, this article, when the, the one that kind of brought us <laughs> to this conversation, perhaps um, at, for foreign policy, I interviewed multiple people whose professional sort of occupation in one way or another is to think about Russia. And, you know, I, I spoke to the top experts in the field and they were from various walks, you know, opposition leaders, press, politicians, um, military experts. And um, in all but one conversation, this idea of disintegration of Russia um, came up. And, uh, you know, some people like, you know, General Hodges or more American experts like Alexander Vindman believe uh, that the uh, disintegration of Russia as a federal state is, is inevitable. But the question is, you know, what is it gonna what is russia itself <laughs> going to disintegrate from right i mean it's still gonna be a huge place whether it will fall into you know this there is a map that's kind of running around internet uh with different post-dissolution lands like ingria and you know the you know the cossack republic and whatnot whether it is um whether it will happen i feel like is is anybody get anybody's guess? Uh, but the interesting part is that everybody I talk to, say for one person, believe that it will happen in one way or another. And I wonder whether it's our collective desire <laughs> to see this thing fall apart. And uh, because we've seen it, that it's a menace, right? I mean, it just keeps reassembling its its progressively worse iterations and. Uh, 
partly this is driven by the fact that a land that big as Russia with weak atomized society, you know, like it's interesting that here in America, for instance, there is this concept of community, community war, community activism, like community, there is no, I can't bring myself to find an analogous word in Russian, right? So there is no uh, such thing. So there is no community and to rule a realm like that, you need to have, uh, you know, what you know, Putin calls vertical of power or it's your old um, centralized uh, militarized model that was introduced by, you know, the, the Mongols to the conquered lands of Rus, uh, which it keeps uh, sort of uh, <laughs> reproducing in in many ways. And we just, uh, how, how sustainable it is, it's not sustainable without, I feel like Russia is not sustainable uh, as a single state without repression because the moment Gorbachev pulled repression back, the whole thing fell apart. And so whether Russia will fall apart, it depends on, the commitment of uh, the people who will be in power in Russia, whether it's Putin or whoever comes after him, to to keep the realm together through violence. And the you know biggest ruse that I feel like they staged is they convinced um, a huge chunk of Russian population that their personal survival is tied to the survival of the Russian state in its borders, as defined by the current autocrat right and so because of that you know they you know they might be able to convince people to uh you know keep fighting in this war i don't think that all of the people who are you know in ukraine uh, the russian military are you know came went there because they are bloodthirsty and um they they want to kill ukrainians i mean there must be those two, but I'm thinking about the majority who from their childhood were raised with this idea of uh, one day, you know, motherland will call for you, call you, and you should give your life for the motherland. And so it's been like that during my times in the Soviet way, um, in a milder, milder way, right? Because at least in the Soviet times, we were brought up with this idea uh, perhaps erroneous that, you know, Russia never attacks first, like we only defend ourselves. And, you know, because we had this great war right behind us where USSR was attacked by Nazi Germany, that kind of rang true, right? And so there was that you have to be always ready to defend the motherland. And, you know, obviously Putin took the victory in the war, um, which he kind of ascribes to the Russian people alone, although everybody who was part of the USSR contributed, right? And then he makes it a foundational moment and part of the new uh, Russia, Putin's Russia identity where this war trauma is constantly stopped. It's it's just, imagine going to a therapist and, you know, to unload your childhood trauma. And instead the therapist says, that's who you are. You know, you're, the, the war, the, you know, burning villages and, and also Russians are raised in this. So a lot of people are just basically, they feel, oh, okay, it's my turn now. I'm gonna go into that, you know, train or whatever it takes them to Ukraine and, and I'm gonna die there. And and that is 
you know that's that's a very sad outcome uh for 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 a, for a place that could have been something else and um yeah. And that's something similar to what uh, Peter Pomerantsev said when I when I spoke to him some time back. I you know talked about Russians being good at fighting, and he said, "No, Russians are not good at fighting. They're good at suffering and dying." And there does seem to be a a, a an impulse there, as you say. There's there's toxic narratives. There's history that's been mythologized. There's a strong imperial history that either pushes out any other alternative history, pushes out any other narrative. And has then been imposed on on everyone's heads. We have to remember that a big chunk of Russia are not ethnic Russians, and yet this same imperial narrative has been sort of baked into into the heads of tens of millions of people. Uh, it's difficult to know how that can be unbaked, but there are potentially other narratives in Russian history. If we're going to walk back uh, from you know the current situation and a fragmented Russia, there are some stories in Russian history of revolt of independence there's the novgorodian republic there are there are moments in russian history prior to you know muscovy and this you know endless imperial expansion so potentially the idea of russia might not be dead but it would need to transform significantly and it might have to become a series of local identities and mythologies rather than a a, a huge transnational one that would be an ideal scenario. The question is, you know, who's going to do it? <laughs> Russia itself is not going to do it. It's not in the interest mm -hmm. of the current regime um, because now, I mean, look, if if the uh, international court is issuing an arrest warrant uh, for the president, what's going to happen to all the other, the underlings, right? I mean, that sends a very, very powerful uh, message. So uh, to imagine that you know people would sort of wake up from their slumbers and 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 sweep the autocratic reign away, I I, I don't think this is a realistic scenario. Um, it's just to, it it has come too far with a repressive machine, with a brainwashing and uh, with general passivity of the population and destruction of opposition really, because you you have to have some kind of organization in order to um to make regime change so um if we look at germany you know and how germany was reformed you know the the allied powers helped uh sort of build rebuild germany along the non-nazi narrative um but there was no nuclear weapons back then and who's gonna be doing the same thing to russia and that's my big question because russians themselves um I'm not sure they are capable to overcome, you know, not that, you know, everybody is capable. I mean, Russians in the West, um, most of them behave like normal, normal people. And, uh, you know, it's not to say, I don't believe that, you know, in genetics of being an autocratic nation, but I do believe in historical precedent. And if we look at Russian history, yes, you brought up the Novgorod Republic, but I'm, you know, I'm not sure even if it's, and Novgorod and Moscovy were the same, uh, the same place. Yes, they were made when you know their the the bell was torn down, and you know people from Veliki Novgorod resettled to you know other places. But um, the the thing is, I'm just not sure that uh, the there is enough. There are any mechanisms 
that can be activated in Russia right now to sort of make it a better place. And, you know, I know that uh, some people whom I interviewed believe that Russia can be reformed. Uh, and and let's all hope that it can, because what's the alternative, right? Like, what's the alternative? You have this giant country that basically essentially descended into fascism. And so you, you've got to do something about it. You can't, the, the, you can't let it sort of sit uh, because there are a lot of people who say, yeah, let, let's surround, you know, country with a ditch filled with crocodiles, right? That's a fine concept, but it's got to be a pretty deep and long ditch and too many, we don't have that many crocodiles, right? So we have to figure out a way um, just for our own security. Like you started this conversation. This is not about Russia and Ukraine. This is not even about, you know, Russia um, in Europe. It's a, it, we are witnessing a geopolitical realignment and um, the visit of Xi to Russia underscores that, you know, Russia is, is not that isolated as we want to think. So you can't really isolate a place like it. it will always find some kind of allies and you know there may be something like you know Iran, but hey, you know, if you get a bunch of them, um you you have a coalition. Uh so what what do we do with this? And I think we need to as the as the West to also look at ourselves a little bit, right? And think, okay, why is it compelling to some people to or some nations to keep aligning themselves with uh, with Russia, you know, um, and and how do we how do we change that? Because that's what I feel is going to be happening in the next um, decade, right? This realignment is very very real. Whether you know how and when uh, will uh, and whether Russia will fall apart, I feel like nobody can tell you, right? There is a consensus, but part of it. That that it will, but I I wonder if part of it is just a projected desire for a better reform um, reformed Russia. The question would be, you know, what, what what do we do with all the people out there who have been poisoned by the imperial mindset, by stoking their trauma, and you know, honestly, by decades of really destroying everything that moves, that thinks, when, you know, and we can talk maybe not even decades, but, uh, you know, but centuries. And as far as, you know, if you're wondering, you know, whether this, uh, you, you mentioned that there are some history of rebellions in Russia. In the modern Russian state, I feel like there are, you know, other than the peasant revolts, which were not political in in essence, there is not much because the Roman autocracy, collab autocracy collapsed when Nicholas abdicated, right? The change in Russia, regime change in Russia, at least in Russia in sort of the terms that we are talking about, modern terms, has always come from the top. Gorbachev decided to reform USSR um, and um, that's why we had. So to think that, you know, the that the Russian population will sort of rise up, I think we're past that point. I think we have all hoped when Navalny returned um, and you know they, they, and they imprisoned him and put before that poisoned him that that would be enough for people. And, and it, it wasn't, right? And then we thought that the start of the war, 
And it wasn't. And then we thought that mobilization and no, nobody rises up for reasons we can talk about for you know two more hours, but that's that's the reality. So I feel like we need to think about what do we how do we handle a a a, a big state that's in a con and you know in a descent to uh, into fascism and we're only I feel like we're only in the beginning of the spiral. Um, it, and it's, it's not a, just fascism. I mean, it's a sentence of lawlessness as well. So not only do you have, you know, internal lack of due process and lawlessness, I mean, how can you trust any treaty or arrangement made with such a state that does not adhere to those sort of concepts of international law or treaties? And to an extent, you know, you've got a law of, of, of power, law of the jungle, let's say. And it's, uh, you know, states it's, like China, perhaps in Iran, North Korea, know how to deal with it because they understand the that that power dynamic and uh you know they they they're they're willing to exercise it but difficult to see how a democratic state can can interact it it is true and it's you know no it, no surprise that putin likes to quote from you know kipling and the the jungle book you know it's like those he, he keeps pulling up those metaphors as though other books have not been ever ever written and uh how do you deal with a rogue state that just goes around and does what it wants and you know i feel like a lot in the and we talked about this uh you know before when stalin was doing what he was doing and killing people by millions he was kind of uh it was it was viewed from outside of russia as kind of a domestic affair you know forgetting that ussr wasn't exactly a voluntary arrangement uh but for some reason you know there, there was a lot of credit given to russia's sort of attempt uh to build uh forced uh, for, sort of forced attempt to build uh socialism but now uh now that illusion that illusion is gone and um there is no more there are no more credits i feel like to give to russia we we you know russia has run out of the world's uh, goodwill as far as the western democracies go it but it will it doesn't mean that it will not continue being russia it will seek to build alliances with other outcasts of the western world and tell them you're not an outcast you know come, come here <laughs> we'll bend together and will be strong and and mighty and i think that you know that's a huge diplomatic challenge which we would have to we would we would have to solve um and and i hope there are that that people out there and you know the hoover institute and other uh, establishments like that are preparing for this new reality like because the past is gone there is no more Russia of Gorbachev, um, you know, even of Brezhnev. It's a very new entity that we're dealing with that has kind of reneged on its own norms. I mean, Russia has never been particularly law, uh, you know, a, a place governed by laws. But, uh, you know, now what's happening with recruitment of uh, convicts and uh, sort of people who were outside but by their own laws, they were put in prison and basically given guns and said, uh, "Go, go and do what you want and and be violent." And and that's 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 really scary, right? Because those people are gonna come back, 
hailed as hero, like we witnesses the witnessing the creation of this new elite, which I think is another word that's completely inapplicable to the Russian context. There is no elite. There are people with the guns, right? Or the people who have power over other people. And so that is sort of like a dark, if you, if you continue that trajectory, what is it going to do to the society that's already uh, been battered by, um, you know, decades of unconstrained rule? Now, now it's, um, there are no, no norms. There's just, um, everything is reset to, to violence. And moreover, it's kind of becoming institutionalized, right? When you give a hero, a Russian hero star or whatever to the person who you know used to a sledgehammer to his own grandmother and then became a, a fight in Ukraine, uh, you you're sending certain uh, certain messages and and that's also you know I feel like um, the Russian state machine is really good at um, not only creating propaganda but like replicating it and and introducing it into it has I guess in marketing terms you would use the word a lot of touch points right I mean schools kindergartens they all pick up you know theaters who all of a sudden fire you know a beloved actress just because of her anti-war stance and hang the Z letter on their facades uh, and, and, and lessons in kindergarten how to assemble guns, right? I mean, that is all happening very quickly and at a mass scale. And um, it's, um, it's just bound to create a very unpleasant um, environment, which in the long run, like if you're so unhappy, like if, if this is such a dark place to be um, for everyone, but you know, 10 people what's the point right like it, it it it's unsustainable in the long term but the question of course is mm. how how far is that long term and you know where are we that's the, the one no one can answer isn't it and i fear that russia is both more fragile and more robust than we give it credit and this thing monstrous though it is can carry on going for a for a very long time um and you know, this is another narrative, and I'll, I'll, this this will be the last sort of question here. But this is another narrative that the Oscars, notwithstanding, I think is going to gain more force over the coming weeks and months, and that is that the Russian opposition, uh, despite their you know martyrdom and sacrifices, and in many cases like Ilya Yashin, Karamurzar, it's incredibly noble, and they're they're extraordinary people, but the Russian opposition is toothless. They're still acting as if they're living in Vikitaranske Vrimena, you know, vegetarian times, whereas the times they're living through are red in tooth and claw, and they do not have the aggression. They do not have the organisation. They do not have the ruthlessness to go up against the people who are in charge, and, of course, the Siloviki class, the entrenched yeah. bureaucracy, the FSB, who are some of the most ruthless people to have emerged in history. And that that doesn't give me much hope, unfortunately. Yeah, and if I if I think in terms of, you know, because we we do look at Ukraine, right? And Ukrainians who uh, for, for a really long number of centuries have been part of the same project, you know, a polity or what you know, not. Uh, you know, sometimes willingly, but most of the times force, forced, right? And so these people who uh, 
you know, our Slavs and kind of like share the same uh, certain ethnic characteristic. And, that, and so they go on and they have Maidan and they call their government to answer and they change presidents, right? And so they are ready to, to die for freedom. And that's what I felt uh, like is a fundamental difference is that Russians are not ready to die for freedom. Uh, they can adapt their existence to live unfree, right? And and I feel like that's why um, Ukraine succeeded in becoming a democracy and Russia hasn't because nobody is willing to go all the way. And also, I feel that, you know, there is deep inside, there is not enough love that Russians have for their own country. That's why they, they you know, they prefer to leave, either leave or just they, they, um, they, that's why, you know, if you really loved your place, you wanted to make it a better, like no sacrifice is big enough, but we've, we haven't seen it happening. And, you know, that is, perhaps the starting point would be to make Russia a, a better place, a place where people want to fight for it and to fight for their own dignity, right? I mean, because that's what I felt was happening in Ukraine. They didn't want to be told whether or not they can join the EU. They wanted to be masters of their own fate. And we, you know, the Bolotnaya protests in Russia that, um, you know, were happening, around the same time, you know, on historical spectrum, they they didn't go far enough. And and that was the end, right? Like, so they, it didn't produce the revolution that could have turned Russia around, removed the regime and, and, and sort of uh, returned Russia to uh, at least the 1990s, um, as far as, um, you know, the state model is concerned. Um, that there is no red, there was no readiness on behalf of the opposition to go uh, all the way. I mean, that's that's my perception. But there is also, you know, um, the Russia is an empire, right? Even the best um, people in Russia, because you live in an empire, uh, you know, might be tainted by the way, not tainted, but influenced by. The way the empire projects itself, and so, you know, we we just, uh, you know, I I I wish that all political prisoners are freed in Russia and allowed to compete freely and run for president and and or parliamentary republic and whatnot. Um, but I think this time around, if it happens, right, we can't just afford stepping back and watching it. Uh, as a nice, sort of a movie with a good ending, we, we've got to know that the forces that hold Russia together are fundamentally anti-democratic. And so uh, I feel like the first time around with the dissolution of the USSR, the West was too happy uh, by the economic opportunity that this giant consumer market uh, opened, and they thought that the market would solve itself. Well, now we don't have that guys who don't have that illusion. So we would need to figure out how to, um, if there is a regime change and that regime change is not to somebody like Prigozhin or Kadyrov or, you know, but say somebody like Navalny or Hodorkovsky or whoever comes to, to power, um, you know, 
would those people be able to hold it, Russia from another slide into its default mode? Because we've, as we agree, its default mode is not pretty, right? It's it's an empire that just kind of leaves off the land that it seizes and it mines them and extracts their human and natural resources. And that's how it operates. And that's not a healthy healthy model. It, need, it would need to be retrained. And, and that would be sort of a million dollar question of how to do that. Well, I think we've come full circle with that. And I absolutely agree the solution would be a decolonization, a fragmentation, a building back up from the ground up on a, a non-imperial model. But how that happens, I don't think anyone has that answer. I'm not sure that many in the opposition have even embraced that idea yet. Hordachovsky is starting to, but many have not. So I think, uh, you know, we leave this interview with a lot of questions unanswered, but hopefully at least we understand the problems much better from the conversation we've had. And it's been absolutely fascinating, Anastasia. I'm incredibly grateful uh, that you spent so much time so early in the morning in your time zone uh, to talk about <laughs> these uh, heavy issues. Yeah. <laughs> but um, no, I greatly enjoyed our conversation. It's always good to um, to talk about these things rather than stew on them, right? And because that's what, what we're all thinking about. And uh, it's always good to bounce ideas off and uh, you know I'm grateful that you reached out and we had this talk well thanks so much and hopefully we'll get the chance to do that again